Turn over in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We started this last week, and uh, we'll continue today with our introduction. I kind of got down here this morning early and was studying, and I thought, you know what? Um, I had a whole other outline <laughs> prepared for you that kind of got into our first couple verses, and then I realized, you know what? Why am I trying to hurry this? <laughs> We're looking at years to finish this book. Why am I trying to hurry up? So I just kind of took a break and I thought, you know what, I'm going to continue. So this will be the second message as far as introducing it. And next week we'll actually get into our text. But I do want to read for us um, the first five verses of, of our text of John chapter 1 because I think it sets the, the foundation for what we're going to be talking about as far as the introduction goes as well. So if you would honor the word of God and stand as I read uh, verses 1 through 5 of the Gospel of John chapter 1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, we thank you for these words that John penned by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, there's so much truth here in these first five verses. Lord, I pray that we would just uh, take our time to study and to meditate upon them. And Lord, prepare our hearts for all that we will receive as, as your body, as the body of Christ in the coming months and years as we look into this gospel. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Martin Luther said that if we, could, if we should lose all the books of the Bible except two, John and Romans, we could save Christianity. <laughs> now, we believe that all of the Word of God is inspired, so there's no fear of that. And the application of the whole Bible is what's needed for us as believers. Nevertheless, this book that we are looking into, the Gospel of John, is special because it gives us a certain portrait of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as the Savior of the world, as no other gospel does, as no other biblical writing does, really. And... Uh, it's so important to, to understand that. Uh, there was a man, uh, some of you may recognize his name, Henry Clay Trumbull. He was, lived back in the, the uh, mid to late 1800s, and he was an American clergyman and author. He became a world-famous writer and editor, and he's actually known, if you're, if you're familiar with the name, you probably know him as the pioneer of the Sunday school movement. He was the one that kind of... Uh, came up with that whole idea of having a Sunday school and a church. And uh, an old story suggests that this man, Henry Clay Trumbull, suggested to an agnostic who was arguing with him about theology, he said, you know what? I challenge you to study the Gospel of John. Study the Gospel of John. And after some time, this, this agnostic, after emerging from his skeptical analysis, he told Trumbull this. He says, the one of whom this book tells is either the savior of the world or he ought to be. <laughs> that was his takeaway. And so the apostle John himself is the author. We know that. We looked at that last week. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he never refers to himself in his gospel. Um, in fact, none of the, the four gospels do that. None of them identify the author inside the gospel itself. Church history tells us who the authors are, and it's universal. Everybody agrees on this. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's pretty simple. And John is mentioned 20 times in the other gospels by name. He's never mentioned in this gospel by his name at all, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, rather, he's mentioned Jesus himself, and he calls himself the disciple whom, what, Jesus loved. That's a pretty good title if you stop and think about it. Um, John, or the disciple who Jesus loved, you know, that's kind of hard-pressed to choose between the two there. Um, he is the one that we find at some point leaning on the breast of Jesus at the end of life. And uh, he, he starts out 
not so much, not so loving. If you know anything about John, he has a brother named James, an older brother, and they're, they're called the, thun, the sons of thunder. <laughs> so if that gives you any kind of indication, we've had some kids grow up in our church, and uh, you know, sometimes a couple kids, you know, oh, they're the sons of thunder, you know, they're just rambunctious. And uh, they actually wanted to call down fire from heaven on some people that were mistreating Jesus. That's kind of their attitude. Uh, and so Jesus knew, God knew they needed to be tempered in their personality just a little bit. And some of us understand that kind of tempering that God has to do in our lives. And obviously, over the years, as you read through this gospel, you're going to see that Jesus, or that John was wonderfully tempered in his character. So much so that he is known in history as the apostle of love, not of judgment. And the reason he's known as the apostle of love is because he makes reference to love over, well, some 80 times, let's say that, in all of his writings, of all the the biblical books that he wrote, 80 times. And so he's genuinely identified as an apostle of love. Uh, It's also true about John that he was concerned about the truth. He was concerned about the truth. He mentions the word truth in his writings 25 times in this gospel alone and 20 times in his other epistles. So a a total of 45 times he uses that word truth. So he talks about love 80 times. He talks about truth 45 times. But the top word that he uses is the word believe. And it's some 100 times in this gospel alone. I challenge you to go through and count them all. But, you know, see if you come up with the same number. But it's it's interesting. Now we have computers that do all that for us. So, But he uses the word believe 100 times. Um, That's why Merrill Tenney, when he wrote his commentary, he's a wonderful commentator, on the the gospel of John, he titled it this way, John, the gospel of belief. That's what it's about. When you put all this together, what does John want us to get when we read the Gospel of John? He wants us to believe the truth so that we can enter into a relationship of love with the Lord. He wants us to believe the truth so we can enter into a relationship of love with the Lord. Well, let's look a little bit about this this apostle, John. He has a father named Zebedee, and they run a fishing business together in Galilee. His mother's name is uh, Salome, and according to John 19.25, and she may have been a sister to Mary, the mother of our Lord. So indirectly, you could say that he could even be a relative of Christ himself. Maybe that's why he was so worked up when people were attacking his cousin or whoever he was. And so, you know, as I said, he starts out pretty radical and severe and self-serving. Remember the text where even his mother, she asked Jesus, you know what, can, can John and his brother sit at your right hand in the kingdom? I mean, that's a pretty uh, bold question to ask the Lord. But over the years, we see John being tempered. We see the work of the Lord on his heart. We see the Holy Spirit really working on his heart. And, and this is what should happen in our Christian lives. Uh, a few years that he spent with the beloved apostle Peter, and he becomes then known as the apostle of love, the apostle of truth, the apostle of faith, some have called him. And that's what we're going to find out as we go through this wonderful gospel together. The gospel of John in and of itself is identified by many through the centuries as they call it the holy of holies of the Bible. <laughs> that's how much it stands out. Um, And they focus on one chapter of John, John chapter 17, and in quite a few months we'll get there eventually, but this is where our Lord prays to the Father, and he has that intimate uh, inter-Trinitarian prayer that he has, and nowhere else does that appear in Scripture, And, 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 and John is often called the Holy of Holies because in this gospel, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is fully displayed like nowhere else in Scripture. John MacArthur introduces John's gospel with this quote. He says, in this gospel, we will fellowship in the deepest way with the Lord Jesus. 
We will hear his beating heart. We will touch his wound prints. And hopefully with Thomas we will say, my Lord and my God. This is the goal of our study. John's primary theme is the man we know as Jesus is none other than God on earth in the flesh. John's message is simply this, the eternal God himself has become human. And you say, well, why did that have to happen? Well, it had to happen in order that he might save us as sinners from our sin, from death, from judgment, and eternal hell. That's what awaited us. And the message of the Gospel of John is simply that this eternal God, this infinite, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, everlasting, unchanging, one true living God who is at the same time one God and yet three persons has become a man in order to save sinners from their sin. That's how much God loves us. In John chapter 1 verse 14, he established is this truth. He says, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. The word throughout this gospel is a reference, is a title given to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, at the birth of Christ, what did the angel say? The angel said, we will call him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Because that very baby is indeed God with us. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 35, he is to be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, because he is deity in human flesh. This is the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is an essential truth for our Christian faith, that Jesus is God in human flesh. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. That God, the eternal, infinite, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, everlasting, unchanging God, has come into his creation in human form. That massive reality is really the foundation of our Christian faith. You lose that, you lose the faith. Now, all the Gospels tell that story in one way or another. Matthew says the Messiah is the king, and you're, you're required to worship him. Mark, on the other hand, says this is Christ is the servant who came to serve humanity, therefore follow his example. Luke, the doctor, says this is the only man among men without sin. He's perfect. And he says to emulate him. And John, all those three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are the synoptic gospels. They all tell pretty much a similar story with similar details. But John stands apart. John says, this is God in human flesh. You have to believe in him. And three of those gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us this earthly history of Jesus Christ. John doesn't go into the earthly history of Jesus Christ. He's not interested at all in the earthly earthly history of Jesus Christ. The other three, they'll look at the birth of Christ. They look at the life of Christ. They look at experiences of Christ while he was here on earth. They look at where he traveled to and how he called upon his followers and the teaching and the parables, all the events of his life, all those Three other Gospels, that's what they look at, including the arrest, the trial, the execution, the resurrection. And those features of Christ's life are very familiar to us. And that's why the synoptic Gospels are so important, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John doesn't give us an earthly story of Christ. He doesn't. He gives us a heavenly story. He tells it from heaven's perspective. He gives us a supernatural view of Jesus Christ. In that way, John is unique. He's set apart from the other Gospels. 90% of what is written in John is not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 90%. It's all original material from the Holy Spirit. 90% of this, what we'll be studying, is John's alone 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to declare to be the Word of God. There's nothing in John's gospel about the birth of Christ. There's nothing in John's gospel about the early life of Christ. There's nothing in John's gospel about the baptism of Christ. There's nothing in John's gospel about the temptation of Christ. There's nothing in John's gospel about the transfiguration of Christ. There's nothing about the travels of Christ. There's nothing about the the agony in the garden. When Christ was in the garden, there's nothing about his ascension into heaven. All those things happened on earth. John's not interested in that because John is not focusing on the history of his life. There are no parables in the gospel of John for the most part. Parables are earthly stories with a spiritual meaning, you could say. There are no earthly stories in this book because it's a heavenly book. This is a heavenly look at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the most heavenly of all the Gospels by far. And the purpose of John is to convince us as sinners of the true person of Christ. To convince us that he is our only hope, our only Savior. And as we stated last week, the purpose of this Gospel is stated all the way at the back, chapter 20. Verse 31, John says that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have salvation in his name. This is a, you could say, a salvation book. This is an evangelistic book. Because in order to have salvation, you must believe in the true Christ. There's no other way, there's no other path to heaven. You know, there's a lot of different ideas, really, when it comes to salvation. And the world has kind of come up with, with, with three views of who will be in heaven. And you can kind of summarize them this way, if you would. The, the first view is, is one that we call universalism. And that's, that's simply the, the belief that everybody goes to heaven. They can't envision a God of wrath and a God of judgment, a God that would send people to hell for eternity. So they just say, well, everybody's going to heaven. That solves their problem. So you have the, the, the view of universalism. That's not a biblical view. That's not what the Bible teaches. Secondly, there's a prevalent view about who goes to heaven, and that's what you would call pluralism, which maintains that all religions are equally valid. We see this very evident today, especially today. All welcome. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's on their way to heaven. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Buddhist or Mormon or Jehovah Witness or Christian or Baptist or Methodist. It doesn't matter. Every, God's going to take everybody to heaven. Because pluralism says that there's a place in hell for murderers and rapists. But you know what? Good religious people, they go to heaven. And so that's how they view the human race, as good people. It allows us to send really bad people to hell and allow all the other religions to go to heaven. So you have that view. You have universalism, you have pluralism. And then a third view is inclusivism, which holds that Christ's death on the cross is the only means by which people can be saved, but they can be, they can be saved... Uh, they can be saved without personally trusting in Christ. People believe this today. It holds that Christ's death on the cross is the only means by which people can be saved, but they can be saved without personally trusting in Christ. In other words, yeah, we believe in the cross, we believe in all that, but you know what? You don't have to push people for a decision. That's it's okay. You've got to take that all into consideration. Um, people who have never heard the gospel, they say, and simply believe the revelation of God, maybe they see it in creation somehow, as, as Romans 1 says. Well, if, even though they don't hear the gospel, even though they don't know about Christ, they'll still go to heaven. God gives them a pass. That's not true. That's not true. That's why we have missionaries, right? To send people, to tell people of 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't go out in nature and hug a tree and say, well, I just thank you, God, for your creation. I'm going to heaven now. No. That's not going to happen. And, and this is very important that we understand this because this floats around in churches all day long and people think, well, that's okay. That makes sense. You know, if someone fall, follows another religion, it's, maybe it's close to Christianity, maybe they don't believe exactly what we believe. Um, but you know what? That's okay. That's not okay. Um, the fourth view, the biblical view, is what we would, would call exclusivism, <laughs> which simply says, you know what? There's only one way to go to heaven. There's only one truth. There's only one Savior. There's only one mediator between God and man. Scripture supports everything I just am saying, right? Jesus himself said, I am the what? The way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I don't know how you can make that mean anything else. I mean, I've tried. I've looked at it. So, well, maybe, you know, if you change this word. No, even if you change words, it's still, the truth is there. He didn't say, I'm one of the ways. He said, no, I am the way, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So we have a religion that is very much exclusive It's an exclusive gospel. It's an exclusive message. It's an exclusive group of people who will be going to heaven. Those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says. So it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with us when you really stop and think about it. What's our job? Our job is to fall on our knees and thank God for saving us because we would never be saved otherwise, ever. I remember hearing one one person say one time, well, you know, Adam and Eve upset me. And and if I was Adam and Eve, I wouldn't have done what they did. I thought, whoa, do you hear what you're even saying? And they they didn't. But, I mean, that is the epitome of pride in someone's heart. See, when we come to the Gospel of John, his purpose is these things are written that you may believe that you may believe over a hundred times he uses that word. And that you may believe in the true Christ. That's why he says that you may have life in his name. You must believe in the true Christ, not a false Christ. That's not going to get you anywhere. And trust me, there's a lot of false Christs out there, right? The Bible says such. Not a misrepresentation of Christ. Not the Christ of some human institution or human philosophy or false religion. But John says, no, I want you to to believe in the true Christ. And he gives us this immense treasure over and over and over again, 21 chapters demonstrating in every paragraph almost that Jesus is God over and over and over again. He is God in human flesh, that he is the true God, he is true man, fully God, fully man. He's not half of one and half of the other. Jesus Christ is 100% God, 100% man in his incarnation. You say, well, that doesn't add up. Well, I understand. It's like when somebody says, you know, I'll give you 110%. I say, well, that's kind of impossible. I mean, just mathematically, it's impossible. So, I mean, when you, when you stop and think about it, words have meanings. But it's important that we understand that God doesn't lower himself. Oh, I want to create somebody that you can just totally understand. No, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. He is the God man. He is, I used to tell young people, he is God in a bod. <laughs> That's who Jesus Christ is. And don't let anybody tell you anything else. And notice that John declares, in effect, I'm not writing to merely inform you of this information. He doesn't say that in chapter 20. He doesn't say, I'm, 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 not, I, I'm, I'm not writing merely to entertain you. That's not his purpose. 
He says, I'm writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to stir the heart of the reader to what? To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pause there and spend a little time on that word believe. Because we throw it around sometimes, and I don't think we truly understand what we're saying. The word believe, pistuo in the original Greek, appears 98 times in the Gospel of John. That's amazing. Multiple times, almost in every chapter. So my question this morning simply is, what does it mean that we believe? What does that mean? What does it mean? Does it mean to believe in the, the historical personage of Jesus? In other words, to accept the fact that a man named Jesus lived at some point in time? I think most people would agree with that statement. That there's a man named Jesus that lived over in the Middle East around that time. His name was Jesus and he had an impact on society. Most people would probably say that. I mean, you don't have to go to the Bible to figure that out. Just go to historical books, extra-biblical books secular writings. They'll tell you, no, this this person actually existed. This isn't a figment of our imagination. Well, is it okay just to believe in the historical personage of Christ? I don't think so. Does John mean, well, you know what? Does it mean to admire him? There's a lot of people that admire Christ. A lot of people want to emulate him. A lot of people want to take up his revolutionary cause in the world today. Is that what John means? When he says, I want you to believe? Does it, does it mean, does the word believe mean to entertain warm feelings about somebody? You hear this a lot from people when you ask them, well, who do you think Jesus is? Well, he was a good guy. <laughs> Clearly. I mean, he was a good teacher. He was, you know, and they'll go down the road of, of niceties. Some people venerate him as more than human. Or they devote time and energy in order to please him. Is that what it means to believe? Is this what John is calling us to? I would have to say no to all of those. That's not what John is calling us to. Now, all those things are not bad. Some are even necessary. But the kind of belief that John is calling his readers to embrace goes so much deeper. It encompasses so much more. And this is what I want to look at here because if you look on the the back of your outline there, you will see this word pistuo. And the first definition there is to acknowledge the truth as truth. To simply acknowledge the truth as truth. This is something that is so foreign in our modern day culture, is it not? You know, people are offended if you say you know the truth today. You can't say that. That's not politically correct. That's not correct in our society. Because when you say, I know the truth, what are you saying? They don't, and there's only one. (laughs) Right? I mean, just by the mere definition of the truth, you can't have multiple truths about something. You know, if you walk outside and it's raining, you can't go out and say, oh, it's a beautiful day. That wouldn't be true. And we live in a society today that is given to what people feel, not what is the truth. That's why we have all this transgenderism and and wackiness in society today with people. Because they're being taught at a very young age, hey, just because you were born a boy doesn't mean you have to be a boy. You can be whatever you want. You know, I I remember talking to a mother one time and and she was telling me, I told my son, you know, he could be, he could do whatever he wants in life. I said, you know what? That advice really stinks. Are you saying my son couldn't? No, I'm not saying that. But I guarantee you a couple things. He can't do whatever he wants in life. He can't. His desire shouldn't be, 
Your desire for your son shouldn't be to, boy, he could just do whatever he wants. No, your desire for your son should be praying that, you know what, he does what God wants him to do with his life. Well, I don't know if I agree with that, she said. And I said, okay, well, stop and think about it. Do you think your little 65-pound, 65 short little son at the age of 18 could play in the NFL? Oh, I don't know if I'd want him to play. Well, you just said he could do anything. I don't think he could play in the NFL. I don't, I don't think he could play in the NBA. I don't think he could do a lot of things. Why? Because God has not gifted him with an athletic body to do those things. He may desire to do those things, but in the end, he's not going to be successful at doing those things. He's going to get run over, possibly killed if he tries to do these things. So you can't just, you know, give this blanket promise because he says here that, 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 that belief, bestuo, the first definition is to acknowledge the truth as the truth. And when I say that I believe the book of John, I mean to say that I accept its content as truth. This is so important. To believe in Christ is, first of all, to what? To accept the truth of who he is. You can't be redefining who Jesus is and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, which Jesus do you believe in? Do you believe in the Mormon Jesus? Or do you believe in the Jehovah Witness Jesus? Do you believe in the Catholic Jesus? What do you mean the Catholic Jesus? Well, they have their own Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Well, I find that offensive, Pastor. Well, I don't care if you find it offensive or not. It's the truth. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I know exactly what they teach. When you go into a Catholic church, where is Jesus? He's on a cross, hung there in shame. That's not where our, our, our Jesus is, beloved. The Bible says that he rose on the third day, victorious over sin and death. We do not worship a dead Jesus hung on a cross. We worship a Christ that is victorious. But why do they keep him hung on the cross? I think part of it, it's a reminder for them, maybe genuinely, of the sacrifice that he went through. But the one thing about, unfortunately, our Catholic brothers and sisters, they have no assurance in their salvation. Matter of fact, it's against Catholic doctrine to have assurance in your faith as far as your salvation is concerned. And so when you stop and think about this, do they serve the same Jesus? No, they don't. It's hard. I have loved ones, family members. But, but you know what? It's, it's, it's the truth. And so when we see this, to acknowledge the truth as truth, we have to understand this is what we are called to do as believers. Even in this world where everybody wants us not to do that, we have to continue to realize that, you know what, it is important that we acknowledge Jesus as the truth, the way, the life, the only way. Because people are dying and going to hell every day who think they're religious, who are putting their faith and trust in some church or some pastor or some priest somewhere, some religious leader, and they're thinking, yeah, I'm on the, the right side, and they're not. Because they're unwilling to be faced with the truth of what Jesus himself says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's a very exclusive message. We don't have the privilege of changing that message to make people feel nice, to make people like us when we share the gospel. No, we have to be acknowledging the truth is truth. Secondly, I think it's important, the second definition I put down there, and it literally means this, to trust in or to rely upon to derive confidence in something or someone. When you say you believe, that's what you're doing. You're trusting. You're relying on. You're, you're putting confidence in something or someone. So when I say I believe in Jesus Christ, what am I doing? I'm declaring that I trust him. 
that I'm committed to him, that I rely upon him. I have placed my complete confidence in him. Everything that I know about this life and whatever occurs after death is dependent upon his claims, Jesus' claims about himself and how I respond to his offer of grace, to his offer of forgiveness of sin. You know, I got news for you. When you go to heaven, you know, they're not going to say, oh, you, you, what church did you go to? Grace Bible Church. Oh, okay, come on in. <laughs> they don't care. It doesn't matter what faith you're raised in. It doesn't matter what church you go to. What matters is that the one question you're going to have to answer from God the Father is, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus Christ in your life? Because guess what? Anything after that answer doesn't mean a, doesn't mean a thing. And we see it. We see it in Matthew, in places like Matthew 7, right? Haunting passage, haunting passage. But it's important, I believe, that we at least look at this. Um, He talks about judging others. In Matthew 7, he talks about asking, and it will be given to, to to you as you seek and the door will be open such and such he talks about the golden rule he talks about tree and bearing fruit and then he comes all the way down to verse 21 and look at what he says in in matthew 7 he says and this is jesus the lord speaking so we know it's truth right because jesus is truth not everyone who look says to me lord lord say it twice you can say it three times. You can say it a hundred times. It doesn't matter. We'll enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because a lot of people call Jesus Lord. And it doesn't mean a thing to them. There's people in this church that call Jesus Lord. It doesn't mean a thing to them. They go out during the week and probably live like the world. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's that tell us? It's not a matter of just saying certain things. It's not a matter of identifying yourself as part of a certain group. But he says, but the one who, what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Hmm. He says in verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord. He says it again. Did we not, and then they start to recite their good works. Did I not prophesy in your name? (laughs) Didn't I cast out demons? That's a pretty incredible thing. I've never done that. In your name. How about doing mighty works, wondrous things, in your name? Come on, Jesus, this is what I've done for you. Hardly missed a Sunday. Hardly went to Wednesday night. I was there for the prayer times. I was doing all this stuff. And Jesus going, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Verse 23, these haunting words, and then I will declare, the Lord Jesus will declare to them, guess what? I never knew you. Wow. Not that I knew you and I forgot you. Not that I knew you and you left. No, I never, ever, ever knew you. And then the words that Christ instructs them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. Trust me, your belief in Christ, your whole eternity depends on what you believe about Jesus Christ. And how you commit or not commit your life to live for him. When you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, you know, what do you mean by that? There are mega, mega churches packed with people that say, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. But they've never given themselves over to the message of Christ. They've never ever given their whole absolute trust in him. They've never done that. 
Many people listen to the gospel. They learn from the gospel. They nod in agreement over the gospel. But guess what? They do not believe. They do not believe in the Savior of the gospel. They have not submitted their hearts and their wills to the truth of Jesus Christ. To his identity as God and his offer of eternal life through faith alone in him, in his work. I think another important aspect of John's call to belief is that we are invited to believe in Jesus Christ. The person. The person of Christ. Not merely his message. Not merely his teaching. Not merely his example. Not merely his challenge to live a certain way. We are called first and foremost to believe what? In him. This is what it says. This was the intellectual, the moral crisis presented to people of all kinds in John's narrative. Over and over again, many of whom responded with belief. With complete trust. I put a couple examples here. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's six examples here. First of all, you have John the baptizer. In John chapter 1, 33 to 34, just follow along in your Bibles. I'll read it for us. He says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is John the Baptist talking. He says, and I have seen and have borne witness that what? That this is the Son of God. What is he doing? He's testifying to the truthfulness of Christ, Jesus as the Savior, as the one that's come from God. Also, Nathanael, in John chapter 1, verse 46 to 49, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's <laughs> talking to Philip. And Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. That's a good verse to, to use to invite your friends to church, come and see. Come and see. We need to start doing that. We need to start realizing that, you know what, heaven and hell weighs in the balance. Let's, let's, let's get busy about bringing people under the teaching of the truth of the word of God. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said in verse 48 to Christ, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In other words, he's simply stating his deity. You don't hide anything from me, Nathaniel. I see everything. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Once again, somebody who's come across Jesus' path and answers in the affirmative. Answers with, yes, I believe. I believe. Or you can look at Peter in John chapter 6, verse 66. John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We'll go through that whole story when he tells some hard, hard truths. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? (laughs) Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, and the indication is in the original language, you alone have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go here, Lord. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Talk about a testimony of belief. There's no equivocation there. There's no, well, let's see. I don't know. Maybe we should go, guys. What do you think? No. Wholehearted trust. All in. Or Martha, chapter 11 of John. Martha said to him, I know that he will arise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes, there's that word again, in me shall never die. Then he simply asks the question, do you believe this? See, sharing your faith does not have to be difficult. You don't have to have a degree in apologetics to go out and share your faith. You share your faith, you basically put some verses to memory and and you tell someone what Christ has done for you. And you explain who Jesus is and simply ask him, do you believe this? Not hard. And look at verse 27. And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Once again, someone whose life is radically changed because they encountered Christ. Or Thomas, we know the story of Thomas, John 20. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, doubting Thomas we call him, but really we're all doubters at some degree or another. But Jesus says, hey, you're doubting Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put, your, put out your hand and, and place it in my side. And he's telling Thomas, Don't, do not disbelieve, but believe. He knew what was in Thomas's heart. He knows what's in your heart. He knows if you're sitting here this morning and you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I don't know that. Nobody else knows that. But he knows that, and you know that. And he's calling you to put your faith, your trust in him. And Thomas answered in verse 28, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, look at what he says in verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed guess who that is that's us i've never seen jesus in the flesh and we're more blessed than the people that saw jesus in the flesh if we believe and then lastly john the author of the gospel he says jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name This is what we are called to believe. These are examples of people who have put their faith, their trust in Christ. And you notice at the very beginning here, just as we close today, in the beginning was the Word. I think of that hymn we sing by Charles Wesley, Veiled in flesh as Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus, what? Our Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. Notice that John does not waste any time introducing Jesus to his readers as the word of God. Even though he's not mentioned Jesus down, until down through the gospel. But right off the start, he, he starts off and he says, in the beginning, and it's, it's reflective of what The book of Genesis starts off with, right? How did it start? In the beginning, what? God, period. In the beginning, God. Here, what John says is, in the beginning was the word. Take it or leave it. Believe it or not. This is the truth. John begins with the bosom of the Father. Unlike the other writers of the Gospels, John introduces Jesus at the age of 30. Where all the other ones have him coming along at his birth. There's no information about the birth of Christ here. The other gospels begin in Bethlehem. John dates his book by simply saying, In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. My hope is that as we work our way through the wonder of this book in the coming weeks and months, we'll find our view of Christ growing larger and larger and larger. It will expand our understanding of who the Savior is, of His majesty, of His greatness, of His goodness. And as we look at beginning next week, verses 1 through 5, and 1 through 18 really is the the, uh, prologue to this whole book. In other words, it's where John tells us, here's what you're in store for. I'm telling you, here's what we're going to cover. If you want to know what's in the book of John, just read the first 18 verses and he'll show it to you. 
But he wants us to know more than anything that you know what? In the beginning was the word. He wants us to stand in awe of who Jesus Christ is as God and as the one who reveals the unseen God to us through his incarnate flesh. And it's foundational to the Christian faith. It's crucial to your personal faith that you understand and embrace the truth that Jesus Christ is fully God and that he is the only Savior. Bishop Moore once wrote this. He says, a Savior not quite God is a bridge broken at the farthest end. Think about that. A Savior not quite God is a bridge broken at the farthest end. John Mitchell in his book, The Everlasting Love, he wrote this, If Jesus is not God, then we are sinners without a Savior. If Jesus were only a man, then he died for his own sins. And we are still in our sins. We have no hope. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even though we're still introducing this book next week as we get into the first couple verses, Lord, we're in for a real treat to understand what your word declares about who Jesus Christ is, that he is the eternal word. And Lord, I pray that as as a people, as we study this book and read this book over and over again in the coming weeks to prepare our hearts, Lord, that you would do a work, that you would do the work that's promised in the Gospel of John, that we would believe in Christ, and that by believing in him that we would have uh, eternal life in his name. And Father, we pray that you would do that work in each and every individual heart. We pray for those who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Maybe they're trusting in a religion, maybe they're, they're trusting in their own feelings, But Lord, if their belief is in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, they are lost in their sin and on their way to a Christless eternity. And so we pray, Lord, that you would cause their their minds and their hearts to pause at this point and to consider their own eternal destiny. Father, that they would look to Christ and Christ alone as their Savior. Father, that you would take the scales off their eyes that they could see their own sinfulness before a holy God. And that it would cut them to the core. To the point where the only person they could cry out to is you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. God will answer. And he will save you. He will wash away your sins. He will give you the Holy Spirit to help you to live this Christian life each and every day, to sanctify you, to set you apart more and more, to make you more and more like Christ. He will give you a fresh understanding of his word, supernatural understanding, really. For the first time, you can read the words of Scripture, and they will mean something to you. They will be applied to your life. and your. We thank you for that. And, and Lord, we pray as believers that we realize we live in a lost and dying world and we pray that each and every day that we would live lives of righteousness before a unholy people. Lord, that they could see hope in Christ. And Lord, give us wisdom as our lives brush up against other people's lives who may not know you, that we would be loving, that we would be caring, that we would be compassionate, but we would also be truthful. And that we would be um, direct. That we would tell them the truth of who Christ is. Father, we pray for our fellowship time as well across the way. Pray that you bless the food of our bodies as we close with one last song here. We thank you and we praise you. And all God's people said, Amen.